Making time. She came home with paper bags full of root crops, sweet potatoes, turnips, rutabagas, and we peeled while she chopped, the sink filling with skin sliver shavings as we piled bald potatoes on the counter like a shrine. We dug out the bruises and the gritting soft places on the overripe left unchosen a day too long. We chopped them and quartered chunks and cross-sectioned discs before burying our pans under the mounds, sprinkled slips of rosemary across the roots and drizzled them with the pure luster of olive oil, rolling the wedges to coat every surface with our hands. Roots sweetening in the oven, we found placemats, set them with mismatched plates and forks with crooked tines, the house sinking into the earthworm smell. I remember that making time like a sacrament, the kitchen all you needed in a home. Welcome to Clarified Butter, the podcast about meals, memories, and milk fats. I'm your host, Amy Allen. My conversation with our guest today reminded me of this poem that I wrote about my friend and I preparing to host a dinner. As college students, it was one of the first times we had ever hosted any dinner, and it was hectic and messy, and we didn't have good china or silverware, but I still felt the magic of that process. I remember being overwhelmed once the meal got started and everyone was busy talking and eating and wanting to go back to the kitchen and keep having that moment of cooking together with my friend. That night was not far removed from my first time meeting our guest today, Marcy Cohen Ferris. I was taking her class in food and American culture. On the first day of class, I wrote down so many things that informed how I've thought about food ever since. Things like Eating reveals who we are and where we come from, and recipes can act as poetry. Marcy is a professor of American Studies at the University of North Carolina, and she knows better than anyone that food is a great place to start talking about just about everything. A friend of mine the other day, I was posting all these photographs mm-hmm. of these wonderful signs of resistance <laughs> at the recent marches, yeah. the Women's March here in Raleigh and, you know, the Moral March yesterday in, in Raleigh. Virginia, my daughter, sent me. She, everybody knows I'm collecting these. But one of my journalist friends said, everything is a food story. Right. You know, and I think it just, for me, really became... A, a way that I made a lot of sense of the worlds that I was really interested in related to American culture and the study of the American experience. And maybe the first place, I mean, all through my childhood, was it was how I kind of understood who we were as Jewish Southerners in Northeast Arkansas. I think food just played into that mm-hmm. because my mother was from Connecticut and Jewish and, you know, grew up in kind of a conservative Jewish community. And those food traditions that she grew up with, you know, I was always aware of them in this very different world that we were in in Arkansas. And I just knew that we ate differently uh-huh. from the other Southerners around us, both white and black. Mm-hmm. So I think it, that that kind of turned on that little, you know, beam in my head right. when I was a kid. And I started paying attention to it. And then I was just always interested no, not in the ways that like my students go, I love food, you know, like, <laughs> I love food too. But I, I just paid attention to it, you mm-hmm. know, in, 
if we traveled, I was interested in food, you know. And then later, when I went into the field of public history, mm-hmm. and I was working in kind of social histories, social history related museums, mm-hmm. food was always a way that I I tried to teach about the space, the historic spaces I was I was in. Mm-hmm. I was really interested in it. I worked at Plymouth Plantation for a while oh, wow. up in Plymouth, Mass. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is this historic recreation of like the sixteen. 1607 Pilgrim Village and the Food Ways program there is quite historic and in the sense of being a place of teaching history that used food they did that early on in the 60s -hmm. thanks in large part to a historic archaeologist named James Dietz Jim Dietz who was also very involved in southern related digs 17th century digs and He's very interested. He was very interested in, in food ways mm-hmm. through archaeology, of course. And that, again, got that going. Maybe yeah. more as that this was about food studies. Yes, scholarship. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, I think for me, I was writing poetry and looking for metaphors, and I was drawn to really tactile, familiar things, things you find around the house that it's like I might be talking about a particular experience that is mine, but everybody knows what it's like to eat a boiled egg. Yeah. Um, and so they might, it, it became an access point for me to talk about personal experience through something that felt so universal, but also personal to everybody because it's a private experience and a communal experience. Right. And riffing off of that, I just love to find food in writing Mm-hmm. You know, because it, it becomes this moment of like texture and flavor or taste, or maybe I can connect to it. Mm-hmm. And as someone that was mainly a public historian person, you know, I worked in museums, I worked in living history. Mm-hmm. I was not, you know, I didn't kind of move into scholarship and being a professor until later mm-hmm. in life. Um, so I think when I was doing a lot of my scholarly reading, it was so great when I could find those moments, especially when you're reading your doctoral level stuff and there's so much theory right. and you'd come across a blueberry or, <laughs> you know, um, you know, a cordial, a blue, you know, a blueberry cordial in a 19th century diary mm-hmm. or, or in somebody speaking about the meaning of, you know, this 19th century moment and suddenly there's, you know, food to describe these places. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think I, I, I read about this before. It's like those moments or those, I could, and I'm sure you can do the same mm-hmm. thing. I can scan a historic <laughs> document. I can scan an, an article written, you know, in 2017 by another scholar and just p- pick out the food, the food. in it. Mm-hmm. It kind of pops off the page. Yeah. I look for it. Mm-hmm. And because I think I just can connect then to... I know that it's going to be something that, that resonates with me. Right. I, I, it's funny. I was looking through some old books that I have in from one of my first American history classes in college. I read uh, Mark Twain's autobiography and I was flipping through and I noticed I had highlighted almost an entire page and I started reading it and it was just him talking about food. Right. It was just a list of food. <laughs> and I'm sure I couldn't use it at all for my paper at the time or I didn't know I could use it for my paper yeah. at the time. But that's what's stuck out right oh this is how I'll understand this yeah I think I'm sure you remember we we did this one class in that food studies introduction Mm -hmm. to American food studies and we look at food and kind of great moments in food in American literature Mm -hmm. and Mark Twain Mm -hmm. is certainly one who you know he heard he saw it he heard it it was part of his 
you know, it was it was part of his art, like mm-hmm. Eudora Welty. You know, there's mm-hmm. certain people, mm-hmm. artists, writers that see food visually, <laughs> yeah, and it becomes a part of how they describe mm-hmm. and make sense of and embrace and um, push away and resonate whatever with mm-hmm. with the world, and then mm-hmm. other people don't. Right. Right. Yeah. Other people, it's music or right. Or, or food is so um, everyday or so connected with the, with the feminine mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, or, you know, so physical and mm-hmm. so ephemeral that it, it just washes away. You know, people right. don't, don't consider it worthy. Uh, I'm, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I wanted to ask you about food as a way to talk about women's experiences and uh, women's history, because it is, uh, it's a tricky uh, sort of swamp to wade into because it's one of the primary sort of occupations of women for so long, which is problematic, but also how else will we know about them unless we talk about food? Right. I think that's changed, you know, a lot in mm-hmm. the in the last couple of decades, or at least the last decade, mm-hmm. among both uh, among all scholars. Mm-hmm. You know, there's still some pushback uh, about the world of the domestic mm-hmm. in scholarship, and so food is is really for, for those people that won't go there. Food is <laughs> is right on top. You know yeah. that it's just not worthy um, because it's associated um, with. And, and with with women's work and worlds, and so you just feel bad for those people because they don't they don't get it right. And it's just a a silly division these mm-hmm. days. Mm-hmm. But you know there were women scholars probably even kind of back in the beginnings of the feminist movement. You know in the you know even in the seventies and the eighties when I was studying, who pushed against it because they didn't want to see women completely. Um, locked into that domestic space mm-hmm. and so only went to study their only wanted to do work that really looked at their public lives their political lives mm-hmm. but today I think now most women scholars um, feminist scholars for sure understand the complete lives of women mm-hmm. and how can we not talk about food as an art as an expressive language as something that pulls them down and does um, you know, uh, exploit them often in many ways, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, you, you don't, it's, it's silly to, to categorize and, uh, block off certain areas of our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To act as if that wasn't a part of it. Right. Right. Yeah. I think because if in knowing my own family history, my, I can, I can look in archives and find, newspaper articles about my grandfathers who were lawyers in Alamance, my grandfather and great-grandfather who were lawyers in Alamance County, which is wonderful. I want to learn about their history, but I, if I want to learn about my great-grandmothers, I will more likely learn it from stories and from recipe cards. Right. That's... So what kind of records do you have of your, of your, of the women in your family? Um, well, I think, uh, I have... I think the the biggest one, and I, I talked about my talked to my grandmother about this, is uh, a recipe for buttermints for hand pulled buttermints. But it's a a story that's passed in my family about how my grandmother learned from her aunt, and that's an important thing because um, my grandmother's father drowned when she was two, so she was raised by a single mother, 
and her aunts. And she was raised in the sort of matriarchy of, of circumstance. Um, but uh, her learning from her aunt was part of the, the circumstance of being raised by all these women together, while my great-grandmother was a cafeteria worker because she was a single mom, and that was a woman's job that was available to her. So those are the sort of Oh, that's such stories. a powerful story. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've read certain pieces that kind of speak about um, how candy, especially like a, a recipe like that, like mm-hmm. pulled butter mints, you know, that that have that peppermint oil in mm-hmm. them. And that that becomes such a... Um, a family mem, you know, memoir or you know, memory bit mm-hmm. that's a gift that's passed down between generations. Mm-hmm. But it also speaks to that specific moment, right? Mm-hmm. About class or about leisure of that, because mm-hmm. it was your your aunt. It was my yeah, it was my grandmother's aunt. Okay, mm-hmm. right. So yeah. who had that leisure and yeah. and and that the the you know additional dollars to spend on that kind of a treat. Right. 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 And, um, yeah, you know, and, and that, that becomes the, the food memory that, that it's passed down, you know, in, in this kind of really special, um, you know, way. Yeah. Yeah. Because also those treats sort of mark celebration and mark gathering. Right. It's not an everyday thing. Um, so they stand out when they are shared in this sort of particular sort of um, celebrated way. Yeah, because when I, when I was writing and kind of interviewing and doing research for a book on the Jewish South, mm-hmm. and I was, you know, interviewing a lot of older generation Jewish Southern women, and they would speak to their mothers or their grandmothers. And so they came from a, you know, they were either middle or upper class women largely. And there were all these questions, you know, I'd say like, describe to me what your mother, you know, cooked, what was her cooking like? And often Mm -hmm. because it's the South and because they were Jewish and they were a certain class, you know, it was, well, my mother didn't cook, (laughs) um, you know, you know, that, uh, you know, Ida cooked for us, you know, which was always an African-American lady Mm -hmm. or, you know, it was always African-American lady because of the the generation we were talking about, like the 1920s or the thirties or the forties, but they often made candy. The Mm -hmm. women, (laughs) Right. Their mother or their grandmother or their aunt made candy because of their particular class. And right. it was like, if they were going to go into the kitchen, they they did something special. Mm-hmm. And it spoke of that, that little bit of affluence mm-hmm. and of, you know, that luxury, you know, that you had that, that money to devote to that. And then yeah. and what you, you did in the kitchen as a woman was you, if you were going to cook, you made a treat that your family would enjoy. You weren't making bread or a stew or something so much more utilitarian because you had largely women who could do that heavier kind of cooking but that's not the same you know that that was just kind of a jewish southern class thing that i saw did did your mother cook my mother did cook Mm -hmm. and does cook and she grew up in connecticut Mm -hmm. and you know from a middle in a middle class family where my grandmother cooked as well and a lot, and they kept a kosher household, and we we certainly didn't growing up in in you know the home that my mom created in Arkansas, but her food definitely, my mother's food and my grandmother's food definitely referenced Eastern European Jewish cuisine. I I remember in Connecticut when we would arrive there 
to visit my grandparents and fly up to there from Arkansas. It was just this very exotic, cold, beautiful, (laughs) you know, seaside kind of place. You know, it was complete counter and opposite of Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And we often did go in the wintertime, it seemed, or maybe maybe we arrived in the summer, but it always <laughs> felt like winter, you know, and I can remember, like, landing at the airport, and it would even be snowing, mm-hmm. and by the time we got to their house uh, in New London, it was just filled with these really rich, rich smells of something like, um, she made a stuffed veal, Ooh. which sounds so politically incorrect, right, <laughs> but it's such a Jewish kind of Eastern European or mm-hmm. European dish where you take this side, I don't know what the cut is of veal, but you basically m- make a cut into it and then stuff it with like all these dried fruits, mm-hmm. you know, raisins and prunes and mm-hmm. so there's some wine and it's, mm-hmm. it's really, really delicious. But that was like, you know, another, another world to me. And we, yeah. but my favorite meals when we would go there were like right, really delicious, dark, beautiful rye bread and that kind of farmer's cottage cheese and maybe we'd have you know some 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 locks mm-hmm. that was different than anything I knew in the you know yeah. in the south yeah too. but my mom's my mom's a really really good cook and um yeah. you know and and always always did her own you know even though they they had um my, my folks had an african-american woman who worked for a family named richie lee king she really helped my mother with cleaning mm-hmm. with housekeeping and not so much with food because my mom didn't quite get that you mm-hmm. know she was like from new england she didn't kind of come from that you had a full-time you know they were middle class people you didn't have full-time help who my mom just needed help with the hard, with the, right. big, with the big stuff, you know. <laughs> Did you have a favorite thing that she would make? Yeah, um, I, I still do. She she makes really delicious kind of just simple things like roast chicken. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. they're all kind of Jewishy things. <laughs> Jewy. Um, like brisket. Uh-huh. She makes a really great brisket. She makes terrific roast chicken. She's a very good baker. Mm-hmm. She would often make pound cakes. And these are all kind of out of a Jewish Eastern European tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, a great yeast raised cake called a babka. Ooh, have you ever yeah. had babka? Mm-hmm. It's so delicious. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of made like in a bunt pan or something like that. And that, that was just fabulous. It just, in all those just seem a little European, you know, in a, in a way, you yeah. know, they're, they're braised, they're slow cooked. Mm-hmm. Um, hearty. Yeah. Hearty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's what yeah. my mom always said too. We kind of come from peasant <laughs> people, mm-hmm. you know, we weren't of like, you know, from elites mm-hmm. in any way. So, but she, she, I also, so I had that kind of food with her, but she was also uh, a complete stay-at-home mom, even though she was very engaged kind of in social justice within her community. She was um, a 50s mom, so there were canned vegetables and frozen, right. all, the, all the foods of, of 50s, mm-hmm. processed America and convenience, Right. we also had, um, you know, so... I'm trying to think what, you know, hamburgers and spaghetti and meatballs and, you know, that whole little canned green beans, canned green beans, just not a lot of fresh vegetables kind Mm -hmm. of in the 60s so much. I don't, she really did use a lot of canned and frozen vegetables. It was Mm -hmm. just convenience Mm -hmm. and, um, and a lot of craft macaroni and cheese (laughs) out of that blue box. Yeah. Uh, my mom was uh, a single working mom and 
I when I think about my favorite things that she would make, they're not cooking. Cooking. I mean, they are, but they're sort of fixing. It's like uh, grilled chicken Caesar salad, or uh, cheesy potato soup with like bacon sprinkled on top, um, or like crock pot pork. Yeah. They're, they're kind of. It's they're delicious, um, but I they're also sort of. It's that what's easy and right. what's manageable. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, it's funny how those things, like, you want to say that I'm I'm nostalgic for something really fresh and um, unique. But what I'm nostalgic for is that on my birthday, she would run to the closest coffee shop and get me a chocolate croissant. Oh. Um, those sorts that. of things. Yeah. 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 That's beautiful. <laughs> it was really nice. <laughs> And what did she do? What kind of work did she do? Oh, she uh, she worked at our church uh, as a secretary, office manager, typing up the bulletin. Uh, she would take a red pen to church services on Sunday because wow. she typed up the bulletin and she'd be looking for typos that she had made. <laughs> I remember like looking over in between hymns and <laughs> she's circled something. Um, and then now she works doing something similar at uh, the hospital in Greensboro. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah my, my mother, she's, she's interesting. Um, she's 91, mm-hmm. and um, she, I don't think she really enjoyed cooking, you know, mm-hmm. so much. It was just, you know, it was, there was a big responsibility of getting, you know, two or three meals on the table every day for a family that, you know, could be kind of like, I don't know if I want to eat the pea soup, you know, it was like, eat it. <laughs> um, but she, I thought she was still really, really creative and, mm-hmm. um, had her, uh, you know, really was, was, a, you know, really had some talent. Mm-hmm. One thing yeah. my mom did that I still can't seem to recreate and I, I don't, and maybe it's just, it's from your childhood, but it was a moment like in the 1960s and the 1970s, she would do, she would prepare for Jewish holidays, mm-hmm. like the new year, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur after Yom Kippur. And, you know, when we break the fast or just Shabbat on a Friday <laughs> night or Passover, which is coming up, her dining room and the table, the white linen cloth, the always beautifully repolished silver the special china she would pull that's another era for me i i don't do that as much you know i try to do what i can but it never will match those moments and and maybe it's because you're a child too and you're not behind the stove and you're not preparing it all so you know you'd walk in and suddenly hit that the smell of those holiday flavors and my mom would be like dressed and with her apron on and the we would bring in we always had these young rabbis that were still in seminary who would um come you know to to Blyville to lead services for us and so this young you know 20 something young rabbi you know usually a guy would come in you know mom would be hauling him in you know sit down there it was just all it was a lot of it was very festive and Mm -hmm. uh full of a family but also just a, a real a really beautiful aesthetic mm-hmm. to it that is a little has faded you know I do love those celebrations that are sort of food centric um where it becomes a whole like the whole house transforms right and around you, a meal yeah and you know my mother was like a transitional generation you know too of a women 
um, between the fifties and between the women's movement. Mm -hmm. So she, she always feel like she kind of fell a a bit into a, a, um, you know, a difficult place there Mm -hmm. for, for kind of a a whole era of women that were not, didn't completely fall into the fem, you know, fit or aren't pulled forward by the feminist movement and are still pulled back a lot by, Mm -hmm. by what was expected of white middle-class, you know, mothers, stay at home mothers. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that, that, that's, that's all, but what she would, what that meant is that if you didn't work and you had the means and you had a little help in the way of a housekeeper who came in to help with some of the, the heavy lifting, you could prepare foods, you prepared dishes days in advance, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, it was the era of the freezer, you know, she froze everything like crazy, but that level of difficulty, you know, if mm-hmm. I'm going to make matzo ball soup, I'm usually thinking, can I buy it from the, you know, the bagel bar guy who's now making really good mozzarella soup and then doctor it up with this or, you know, how can I combine things? Because I'll only be prepare, I'll be setting the table maybe the day before, (laughs) but I'm not making, you know, a lot of food in advance. And that's, that's always been so different from, from my mom's generation. She can't understand why my sister and my why we're tired and why we can't why we don't have the time to do these things don't we prepare yeah. you know well why, why didn't she teach us but you know it's it's just and that's I mean that's definitely a luxury to to mm-hmm. have that but I miss having that kind of time to do the baking and the mm-hmm. preparation that that is what makes a holiday mm-hmm. special and there's a lot of Jewish holidays you know that that those foods it's completely different if you just go out and buy the chopped liver or you just go out and buy the gefilte fish. Mm-hmm. It's all great, but you miss a part of the there's, process. There's a ritual and an art and mm-hmm. a magic and a mm-hmm. reconnection mm-hmm. to those women that came before you and to like those recipes, like we were talking about with your mm-hmm. aunt, your grandmother, where, where you start doing those physical processes mm-hmm. and it connects you to them. Mm-hmm. in really visceral ways, you know, in the movement, in the labor, in the smell. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's, all, that's all really powerful stuff. And so, you know, I, I, I long to have a little bit more yeah. of that time. I, I do think, yeah, I, I am always, I rarely host, but when I do, it's always scrambling and always last minute. And I think about every time I go over to my grandmother's house for Christmas or Thanksgiving or anything, she has made a centerpiece, and I think I would never, like, if I can think to, to purchase flowers, I right. really, I will really pat myself on the right. back. Like, I, I think about making pie as something that I, I will buy a, a frozen pie dough because it works and it tastes good. But if I take the time to make a pie dough by hand, how excited and proud I am to present that to people. I know. Um, and how thoughtful that process is of making it that you can't just throw away make a pie crust like without thinking I feel the same way about cakes I I really like to bake cakes Mm -hmm. and because I I think there's just that thing that happens of kind of the magic of that kind of baking you know if you follow this formula and it comes you know then Mm -hmm. then wow it creates this artistic thing Mm -hmm. um 
but one of my favorite cakes my mom makes too, the pancakes and all that, but there's one that's called, a, it's really a southern recipe, is for a jam cake. Have uh-huh. you ever had a jam cake? I haven't. It sounds like I would love it. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're delicious. But we always had one like around the high holidays for mm-hmm. Rosh Hashanah when maybe people were going to stop by in between. You know, there's a lot of services and people drove in from out of town where we grew up. And so you might have a little open house and people would stop by and you just serve them a piece of cake and a little glass of sherry. And my mother always made this jam cake, and I thought it was like a very Jewish Shana <laughs> thing. Well, it turns out she got that recipe from one of her best friends in Blyville, Arkansas, who was not Jewish, <laughs> and you know, and who always made this, you know, very Southern kind of cake. And the jam is you just put in blackberry jam or whatever mm-hmm. dark, you know. Mm-hmm thick jam you have and it makes the cake really moist and really purple Mm -hmm. and so it's kind of like a jammy pound cake wow and then you let it it's the kind I love these kind of cakes where you let it if you if you let it sit a few days it gets even more moist and Mm -hmm. delicious so the jam cake I'm curious because you grew up in Arkansas and now you live in North Carolina and you also have family in Mississippi as you've sort of traversed the south what different sorts of Southern food have you sort of discovered? Well, yeah, that's, it's, a, it's a really interesting arc. Um, I, I think I was the, when I married, you know, in, in the 1990s, and I was introduced to my husband's mother and the women within his family in Mississippi, whose food worlds kind of moved between Mississippi, you know, central Mississippi and New Orleans, mm-hmm. where they had family, and they also had gone, the women had gone to school at Tulane at Sophie Newcomb, and those, that was an amazing kind of, you know, uh, epicenter of, of food cultures, of southern food cultures, and mm-hmm. so because of everything I, I just told you about with all kind of my, the Jewish emphasis on, on my southern food worlds, I didn't get exposed to a lot of kind of really classics mm-hmm. of southern cuisine or at least of of country of more country um southern cuisine even things like dove and you know um you know griots and 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 grits you know this delicious you know like slow braised beef tips and grit you know these were lovely beautiful dishes that bill's mother prepared mm-hmm. so I, I felt like i i kind of went into you know, Southern food school right. when I became a part of that family because we we didn't eat those things, you know, yeah. and uh, fabulous homemade, you know, days of preparing gumbo oh, yeah. that Bill's mom, Shelby Flowers Ferris, would, would prepare. And um, that that was a, just a, a great education and a, and a, and a, and a really um, gracious, delicious world of food within their Mississippi family. Um, they have a much bigger family than the one I grew up in. And whereas my mother kind of, um, everything had to be that all prepared, you know, all (laughs) frozen, all planned out for days in advance. Uh, my husband's mother, Shelby would, could, could feed 20 people within five minutes of notice, you know, knowing, (laughs) and it was all just warm and beautiful and, you know, Mm -hmm. a delicious meal. But, you know, without all the, the Jewish angst. 
I, I, I think that's what happens to you as a Southerner. If you move around, you know, you really start to taste region mm-hmm. and class and race and ethnicity and, and, and geography, right? So you, you move to a different world and you realize, or a different part of the South, and you realize these people eat very differently mm-hmm. than we did in northeastern Arkansas. Because like, I think probably what you grew up eating is maybe a little bit similar to what I ate, which was a world of biscuits and barbecue. Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. just down-home food. Right. You know, people ate at the really good big you know barbecue restaurant called the Dixie Pig you went mm-hmm. out to this fast food restaurant to get really good catfish mm-hmm. and or you went to the country club <laughs> where it was all steak uh-huh. you know a grilled steak and you know really good uh you know those those great salads you know from the from the 1950s kind of and uh you know but that that was it was a pretty simple food world and mm-hmm. uh, tamales you know it's Ooh. kind of it's a it's enough like the mississippi delta you know mm-hmm. there were tamales around too mm-hmm. and you know um and and the presence of of you know hispanic folks that were you know field laborers and you know and brought those those foods too but mm-hmm. it, that's real different than than the worlds we experience in north carolina too mm-hmm. so it's been i've loved kind of learning about north carolina's food worlds and that's what i'm doing right now i'm I've taught a class for probably two, three times now called Carolina Cooks, Carolina Eats. Mm-hmm. And that's a kind of a multi-tiered effort to teach students, um, learn from them myself, really engage in service out to the citizens of North Carolina, and to um, write a book yeah. together. Uh, we're working. I'm working on a volume that will be um, many voices of, of North Carolina writers, food writers, authors, chefs, um, agronomists, mm-hmm. agriculturists, uh, people involved in food justice, racial equity, mm-hmm. um, you know, just uh, uh, chefs, farmers, fishermen. Uh, we're really going to involve a lot of different voices because that's what the food world looks like in North Carolina. You Mm -hmm. know, I I think we're just in an amazingly deep and rich food scene. Yeah. Um, But, you know, we have these really distinctive kind of three or four sections of the state geographically Mm -hmm. uh, and culturally, you know, between kind of Appalachia uh, in the western, in the mountain south part of our state, Mm -hmm. all the way to um, the coast. Mm -hmm. And... It's, it tells us a lot about who we are as North Carolinians today, all those food worlds. Again, it takes us back to how we understand a place and its politics. One way is to do that is through food. So that's, mm-hmm. that's exciting. And um, I, I, right now, you know, um, we were, Sherry Castle came to speak mm-hmm. to my, my students because we were trying to, in one of the first classes, talk about what's kind of the arc of food voices that we can read from the 1930s WPA era mm-hmm. writers who were collecting interviews and stories of people working within food professions across the state, but um, up to today. Mm-hmm. And Sherry introduced us to the work of Betty Feaser. You ever heard of Betty no. Feaser? So this is my, my new, I'm like, you know, obsessed with Betty Feaser, just like <laughs> Sherry is. And I think Sherry's going to write a piece on her. She was like a 1960s, 1970s, had a television show that was on weekly oh. or maybe daily, something mm-hmm. like that, out of Charlotte. Okay. And she was a beloved housekeeping, domestic arts kind oh. of, you know, woman, pro- 
professional woman, uh, uh-huh. you know, who looked fantastic. So, you know, she might, I don't know if she had an hour long show or half an hour, what it was, but you know, she would do all these things in that time. It was in a kitchen setting. Mm-hmm. And so she would make something. The, one of the ones I've watched, she's making like a peanut butter custard and she's got on this great, you know, dapper little scarf around her neck. She shows you how to make that. <laughs> you know, her hair looks great. You know, it was just how to be a contemporary working professional woman of North Carolina and Mm -hmm. be balancing your home and feeding your family and all that, you know, so she was kind of a North Carolina working class, you know, yeah. Public woman. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I I was going to say Martha Stewart, but she's so not (laughs) that because, you know, she really, uh, speaks, sounds like a North Carolinian, you know, it's straightforward and, and, you know, right there. Yeah. No, would, no pretense. I would love to see some videos. Yeah, she's yeah. she's great, and 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 there's so much of this rich, deep um, archival material, and also film that's at NC State, and they're mm-hmm. you know that's digitized now in their mm-hmm. archives. And I'll, I'll put a, a shout out to my daughter Virginia Ferris, who mm-hmm. is a archivist, a special collections librarian at NC State, and she's actually coming to speak to my students this week to help us kind of mine all those great mm-hmm. digital resources mm-hmm. for all the food-related collections at NC State, which are just amazing. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of, you know, ex- uh, county extension agents and home economists and all that world of that provided education about food and food production and preparation and canning and small livestock, you know, <laughs> skills, all that kind of stuff. It was either um, some of it was filmed in the uh-huh. 1960s, and uh, and th- those are those are fabulous. Yeah. You know, but there's millions of photographs and bulletins and booklets and um, pamphlets and advertisements and all that kind of stuff. I, I really encourage people to to check out those resources. And there's collection guides that the smart archivists put together too so that you don't have to kind of discover it all yourself yeah. it's already <laughs> you're not wandering in a maze no. yeah they've got it all kind of fixed for you um well this has been wonderful the uh, question that i like to end with is do you have a favorite toaster blessing uh, that you say or have heard said before a meal beautiful the the only the only kind of blessing that we would ever have in our family was when you were blessing the candles you know you would light the shabbat candles and so then and you'd 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 say the blessing over the mahalah and the candles and over the wine and so when that was done and that's especially the candle part is what women do and i love the ritual to that like you you put your your hands over your eyes and you you know and you look down or you might kind of wave your hands kind of over the candles to draw, draw up spirits or whatever you're doing or something but it's just a beautiful ritual to it and then when that's everybody says kachapas you know and then you have the, that's like my only toast you know but there you go that's wonderful thank thanks for having me oh thank you for coming Butter is produced by Ashley Melzer and me, Amy Allen. To learn more about our guest and about us, visit clarifiedbuttershow.com or keep the conversation going on Twitter and Instagram at clarifiedb. And by all means, don't forget to hit subscribe. 
Until next time, eat what you like and say thank you. Thank you.